Welcome to Splainin', a podcast where two guys explain things to each other that they should know, but they don't. They do not. I'm Evan Smith. And I am Jeff Sims. Welcome, Jeff, to ep- episode... <laughs> That's a good start. It is. 13. 13. Ooh. Is that... Do you think that's weird that this is episode 13 and it's like bad luckish? I don't know. I mean, it's our second episode 13. I'm trying to think back. I think episode 13 was Cork. No, that was 12. Cork? Um, but this is a great day. It is a gorgeous day. Do you know why? I do know why. Because we are in... The same room, baby! We are indeed. And we're even in the same bubble. Meanwhile, we, we're still six feet away from each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's very COVID-y in here. That's just because you stink. <laughs> Jeff, low blow. Buddy. And also, I had a hard day. Did you have a hard day? Yeah. Well, you know what? Worry not. Because tomorrow is your birthday! Dum, 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 say dum, it's your happy, birthday! Happy yeah. birthday to you! Yeah. So, uh, this is a great day. I'm super excited. We're back. We're doing... Uh, <laughs> this was a great day. The eve of your birthday. The eve of your birthday. Yeah, we're sitting down. I have a spicy Caesar. It's the first time I've had a spicy Caesar since last season on the podcast. Yes. Last season, episode six. I, th- I think it was the first... Uh, I think. Mm. Someone go check this. But I think it was the first episode we got in person for the was episode six. And I think wow. that was the time you were drinking Caesars. It's, it's, and you know what? It's probably uh, my... Like I was like, I'm celebrating. We get to be in the same room the same way I'm like, I want Caesars this time. So maybe oh, like... yeah. Caesar is your drink of celebration. Caesar is my drink of celebration. We are celebrating being together, reunited, and buddy feels so good. It feels just so, so good. Heck yeah. Um, okay. So then I do have one correction from last week. Oh, go on. And it is... Um, and I can't believe you didn't notice. I'm shocked you didn't notice. Oh, I'm going to hold up my iPad for a second. I've written a word on it. Okay. And I just need you to say that word out loud. It's an English word. Oh, God. Okay. This scares me. And here's the word. Particles. Great. If you were to use it in a sentence, could you? Uh, yeah. Our bodies are filled with tiny particles. Great. I mean, you're really over-announcing it now. Well. Um, however... In the episode no! in question for just <laughs> last week, um, you tried to say water particles two times. Only, oh. only twice in the episode did you say the word particles. Great. Both times, you did not say particles. Oh, God. I didn't mention it, and you didn't mention it. No. <laughs> but it's, as I was listening, I actually laughed out loud and immediately wrote in my phone, particles. <laughs> so this is the first time. The same water or the same water particles as you touched before. <laughs> One more time, play it again. Okay. The same water or the same water particles as you touched before. Particles. Okay. So that's Great. the first time you said it. Well done, Jeff. Here's the next time you said it. The constant change and flow of gradual change of water and water particles. <laughs> could not say it why particles i don't know why you couldn't say it i don't know why i didn't laugh either time i don't know i think it's because we were in such a heated um, debate towards the end of that episode yeah that's probably what it was <laughs> probably because things got spicy like a caesar a spice a caesar um, but then i actually was i was legitimately wondering i was like maybe jeff always says that word that way so that's particles. why i held up the sign particles is that what i say it's like particles. Particles. Like like O T. Like I can't pronounce the R, so I say pod. Like if a pot had tentacles. <laughs> particles. Particles. Interesting. Yeah, anyway. Well, thanks for that. You're welcome. Yeah. One more time, I just need to hear it again. <laughs>
the constant change and flow of gradual change of water and water particles. <laughs> water particles? Water particles? That's an interesting one. Yeah, I don't know why. Well, know that that's happened. it. Um, do you have any other corrections? That's all I've got. That's all you got. Because, I mean, can you correct philosophy? Uh, I mean, you well, can correct the spelling of it for sure. We've been, we've philosophy. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Uh, no, it was an interesting episode. I enjoyed last week a lot, actually. Yeah. Because um, we, uh, towards the end of it, I was like, I'm fed up. We're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got, you got mad. I didn't get mad. You got a little I'm mad. Not, I'm not going to say mad. It was just like, I was hoping that would be more of a polarizing conversation of like, on uh, each one of those three examples, you would see a different means of identity. But each time you just agreed with yourself in different ones, I was like, well, maybe this one. Then you just didn't. I was like, well, damn it. Don't you see my point? You're like, no. And I was like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, I saw your point. I don't think I didn't see your point. I think it stemmed to the, the fact of I was really caught up on the boat. I really, mm-hmm. I really was using the amount of time as like... yeah. It could be two weeks. Yeah. And even though it could be two weeks, it yeah. could be any amount of time. Yeah, yeah. When, it, when it's two weeks, I'm like, no, nah, it's a different boat. Yeah. If it's a hundred years, I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, man, same boat. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and, and as I was listening to it, I was like, man, Jeff, why didn't you just say this or explain it right. in a different way? Because you were in the moment. I was in, in the, the moment. heat of the moment. Um, so why not take this entire episode and just try to reconvince you again? That's all I'm doing. <laughs> Great, can't wait. Yeah. I'm really, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. What if on Theseus's ship, okay, we're in the museum. Have you thought about this all week? All week. We're in the museum. Okay. Okay, I remember the, the instance where the robber <laughs> takes the, the planks, the, yeah, yeah, takes the plank of wood one by one yeah, and yeah. rebuilds it. Okay. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's a no brainer. The new planks of wood are the, are the, the replica. And then the old planks of wood that the robber stole is the ship, right? Yeah. yeah. So what if. Halfway through stealing those planks, uh-huh. okay, the robbers were like they had to take a hiatus because, like, I don't know, they rolled their ankle or something. I don't know. Or the <laughs> can't steal this week <laughs> on bed rest. <laughs> the doctor doctor told me to half hour ice, half hour east, put it up higher. <laughs> My heart. No more than two hours of thieve in a day. <laughs> take it easy. Um, but they had to stop. Yeah. Right. Which meant some of the blocks of wood from the actual ship were mm-hmm. missing and replaced with new ones, mm-hmm. and they have rebuilt half of the ship or however whatever percentage there. So in that instance, is the boat in the museum Theseus's ship? Okay, I see where you're going. Or is the boat the one that the thief has? Yeah. Again, I don't like being pinned in the corner of I have to pick one because both of them are technically half of them is Theseus. Half of each boat is Theseus' boat. Yeah. If you had the other half of the boat, if you had the boat, the new, the one, the stolen one. Yeah. You'd be bragging people. You'd be like, oh yeah, this is these, this is Theseus' ship. Like, that's the like, whole that's, thing. You'd be like, well, half of it. That's like when you we used to collect Yu-Gi-Oh cards. You have half of Exodia. Well, oh, I yeah, got yeah. I got two of his legs. <laughs> 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 I got half of Exodia. Yeah. I have Exodia. Um, anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there. As I was listening, I was like, well, there you go. Yeah. So, the more Ruby, you know. Ruby, come here. What are you doing, Gertie? Come here, baby. She's protecting us. Yes. Last time we were recording. Was it last time? The Big rat- rats. Huge yeah. rats. Big rat. More die. Anyway, Ruby, every, anytime I see when I open up the door, I say, go, get him. <laughs> and then the Darwin principle over the evolution will be like, don't go to that house. Ruby will get you. Yes, yes. Or they'll be, the rats will be like, well, she's never got one of us yet. 
True. T- take the risk. True. Big risk, big reward. Yeah. You can eat all your junk. Fact. Eat all your junk. You better so- stay away from me, Gyps. Ugh. <laughs> uh, so, what was that? Uh, I think it was the heater cutting in. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> uh, shall we uh, dive in, my friend? Let's dive. We are doing philosophy part two. <laughs> Rude B. Be nice, please. I might have to make her go away. Yeah, I might have to make you go away, little one. Um, so yeah, let's dive in. So this week, I have an interesting topic that you and I are all too familiar with. And I don't know what it is. No, you no. don't. No. It is called existentialism. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, we are all too familiar with existentialism um, because we have existential crises. All the time. All the time. It's like quarter-life <laughs> crisis and s- slowly turn into third-life crisis and mid-life crisis is quickly approaching. <laughs> yeah. And they're all existential crises. So, Evan, tell me a little bit about existential... Quickly, quickly approaching? When we say mid-life crisis is quickly approaching. Well, it depends how long you're going to live, old man. Well, I'm only turning 29 tomorrow, old man. Mm. How old are you going to be? I hope more than 58. One would hope. I would hope. I'm your friend. <laughs> one would hope. <laughs> Morally speaking, one could hope. One could hope that Evan lasts longer than 58. But does he? Mm. Stick around for, <laughs> for season 32 of Splayden <laughs> to find out. <laughs> That's bleak. Anyways, uh, so tell me a little bit about existentialism, Evan, and what you kind of know of it, and uh, yeah. I don't think I know anything. Like, I know what an existential crisis is, uh-huh. but I'm trying to think, like, in terms of the definition of existential. It's like a, like out-of-body experience kind of thing. Is that existential? Uh, no. Okay. No. Um, existential? No, I, I don't know. Interesting. So, obviously, when you and I talk a little bit about it, we kind of say, oh, I'm going through an exist- I don't know what I'm doing in my life. I don't know what I'm, you know. Like questioning everything sort of thing? Yeah, kind of like, am, am I on the right track? Okay. Is this the right decision for me? Right. And then it's, you know, most of the time it centers around, like, is this the right job? Is this the right career? Should I have been doing something different, right? Right. Um, the root word of existential is obviously exist, to exist, mm-hmm. right? Um, so tell you a little bit about it. Um, so what is it about your life that gives it meaning? That's a rhetorical question. I don't want you to know. <laughs> uh, so it could be anything from your job, your family, religion, spirituality, fighting uh, for social justice, fighting for peace. <laughs> that was a weird pause. But well, it's because uh, they're fighting for mm, social justice. No, uh, the, uh, the iPad got in the way. Uh, uh, fighting for anything, really. So that yes. could give your life purpose or meaning. Right. Uh, or maybe you believe that you were created with a certain essence as a human being, with a purpose given to you by God. Okay. Right? That, you know, every religion will usually speak like that. Right. Whatever it is, everyone is constantly looking for the meaning in their life. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a constant search. Uh, does the expression existence precedes essence mean anything to you? Existence precedes essence. It means nothing to me, Jeff. To Excellent. be honest, I like the alliteration, I yeah. guess. Well, it's not alliteration. E- E-P-E. Well, yeah, but... Well, the E-E. The E-E part of it. Yeah. <laughs> so existentialism is a form of philosophy that explores the problem of human existence okay. and centers on the lived experience of the thinking, feeling, and acting individual. Mm-hmm. Existentialist thinkers frequently explore issues related to the meaning, meaning, sorry, purpose, and value of human existence. Okay. 
Yeah. So back in ancient Greece, uh, our good buddy Plato yep. and Aristotle, mm. Aristotle um, believed that everything has an essence. Okay. Okay. Essence being a certain set of core properties that are necessary or essential for a thing to be what it is. So if we go back to spatial continuity. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. You, you thought that's where I was going. Uh, but they're actually closely related. So okay. uh, to kind of dumb it down a little bit, what essence is, uh, is just kind of like the definition of something's purpose. Okay. So your purpose, your meaning, whatever you are here for, you being anything, yeah. that is your essence. Right. Make sense? Uh, so if, as a silly example, a knife, yes. for instance. Uh, a knife could have a rubber or a wooden blade, or a handle, sorry. Yeah. But without, yeah, be, I mean, it could. It could. It wouldn't serve a good purpose. But without the blade itself, it's no longer a knife. Right. Right? Its existential purpose or essence is to be a knife and to cut things. Right. Right? Uh, it is its meaning and its ultimate purpose. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Cool. So for a craftsman to make something, or a craftswoman, um, let's take example, I guess, the knife. Uh, he or she must have an idea of what it is to look like. Mm-hmm. Okay, how it's supposed to work and what its ultimate purpose is in its creation. Right. Right. Its essence is to be sharp enough to cut things. Yep. Right. Therefore, the knife's essence is created before the knife ever existed. Oh, okay. Does yes. that make sense? Totally with yeah. you. Yeah. Its essence precedes its existence. I think you said existence precedes essence. I did. Oh. Yes. Oh. But in oh. this particular instance, its essence okay. will because proceed. it's a knife exactly, okay. or because it's anything that is well human created, right? Right. So think of any tool, any object yes. in here you had to be able to think of it, imagine it before you could then go make. So it. its purpose, yeah, what it's being made for will ha- defines what it is exactly. Yeah. Um. So they obviously believe that everything has an essence, yeah, including us. Okay. Okay. They believed that this essence uh, was instilled in us before we were born. Okay. Similar to all other objects, that essence precedes uh, existence. Right. That God created us with a specific purpose in his image that would then bring meaning to our life. Okay. Right? And everybody individually. Yeah. Okay. Um, our essence, similar to other objects that we create, came before we existed. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the important thing is that your essence gives you purpose because you were born to do a certain thing. This belief is known as essentialism. Okay. which was the standard viewpoint for humans up until about the 19th century, right? right? It was a very religious-based society, right? So as we evolved and science became more of an accepted and prolific practice, people began to question the existence of God, right? Right. So once that came along and came into effect, what obviously— What century was this? Sorry? What century did you say? Uh, it's around the 19th century, right? give or take. Um, so when this came into effect, uh, then came into question— our essence. Mm-hmm. How could we have a predetermined purpose and essence without the all-powerful creator who made us in his image and gave us the purpose yes. and essence? Right. All right. So here's a quote uh, from uh, Sartre. S-A-R-T-R-E. Sartre. Okay. It's a weird name. Uh, when we think of God the creator, we usually conceive of him as a superlative artisan. Whatever doctrine uh, we may be considering, say Descartes, uh, we always agree that the will more or less follows understanding, or at the very least accompanied it. 
So that when God creates, he knows exactly what he is creating. Thus, the concept of man in the mind of God is comparable to the concept of the paper knife in the mind of the manufacturer. God produces man following certain techniques and a conception, just as the craftsman following a definition and a technique produces a paper knife. Thus, each individual man is the realization of a certain concept within the divine intelligence. Okay. Who said that? Uh, his actually, I have his Sa- Sartre or whatever. You said? Sartre, Jean Paul Sartre. Okay, S A R T R E. Uh, so, as another quote, not from him, but from somebody else. Part of what it is to be a good human is to adhere to your essence. Mm-hmm. All right. So, this may be difficult, obviously, because you may not know what your essence actually is. So, right. how could you be true to it? Right, right. Right. So, by the 1800s, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Do you know who that is? Nietzsche. Nietzsche, yeah. Took almost the exact... Nietzsche. Nietzsche? Nietzsche, yeah. I feel like I've heard it as Nietzsche. Yeah, it's Nietzsche or Nietzsche. It's uh, German, so however, okay, like, sure. you want to really pronounce oh, it. Nietzsche's to... probably, like, super anglicized. Exactly. Nietzsche, you know, buddy, Nietzsche from Nietzsche, yeah. yeah. Frederick. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he took almost the exact opposite approach when thinking about existence and purpose. Okay. He embraced nihilism. Right. Right. So nihilism, which is the belief in the ultimate meaninglessness yes. of life itself. Right. That nothing has meaning. We are insignificant beings on this crazy whirlwind universe. Yes. And you have no footprint. And everything is random. Everything is random yeah. and insignificant. And your life is nothing. Yeah. Right? Right. So nihilism is is a deep, dark rabbit hole. So don't Yeah, really optimistic outlook on life. Mm. Yeah. So he kind of took the exact opposite approach. Obviously. So by the 20th century, Jean-Paul Sartre, that's also probably anglicized like hell. Sartre. Sartre. uh, He returned to the question of essence and asked, what if we existed first? Right? What if we do not have any preconceived destinies or purposes, but rather it is up to us to find our own essence? Okay. Okay. This became the framework for existentialism, which is existence precedes essence it's like basically the plot of like every broadway musical where like the young kids go into the city and trying to follow his dreams you know it's like he's doesn't know like when they're like i don't know what i'm made this for is my yet. destiny I don't, you, you know yeah like I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what i'm meant to do but i'm gonna find it yeah <laughs> you know it's like that it's like you're trying to find what your purpose it's is. like hercules it's totally I will that find my way yeah yeah, um, absolutely. So this, of course, was a radical idea at the time, right? Uh, because up until this point, everyone's path was laid out for them. You didn't have to choose a path or find your own purpose because God did it for you, right? But I mean, they still did. Like God was when they were sixteen. God was like, and by the way, you're going to be a carpenter. No, 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 no. But okay, so when I talk about purpose, more so, I mean like meaning, fulfillment. More okay. so than like your I feel occupation. Like your fulfillment changes as things go, and it on. definitely does. But that's where the top of the sentence came in of like, where does your purpose come from? Does your purpose and meaning in life come from your job? Does it come from satisfaction with money? Does it have to do with partners? Does it have to do with starting a family? Does it have to do right. with owning cars? Like, what gives your life meaning? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. being a musician. Does being a musician give your life meaning? Is only one thing allowed to give it meaning? No. Oh, I see. But that's the point, is that in this particular, like, there's all sorts of different groups that could give your life meaning, obviously, different aspects that give your life purpose and make your existence important. Right. 
right? Um, but up until that point, your main purpose or existence was in the vision of God. I see. To serve God, to be with God. It was, it was right. very, yes. now you could still be a carpenter, you could be a farmer, yes. you could do whatever you want, but your purpose and meaning in life yes. was centered around religion, God. That is why we are on this planet. God made us in his image to love each other and to serve him and to be with him, right? So that was kind of their purpose, their meaning. Yeah, that makes sense. Their essence. Totally. Makes sense? Yeah. So when you take God out of the equation, then it's where does your meaning come from? Yes. Right? Um, so existence then precedes essence. Okay. Right? Uh, then came into the thought about whether or not God existed, obviously. So if God does not exist, there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence. A being whose existence comes before essence, a being who exists before he can be defined by any concept of it. Yep. That being is man, or as Heidegger puts it, the human reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this note, existentialism is not synonymous with atheism, though. Right. That just because you're existentially thinking of your purpose does not mean that God is not a part of the equation. Right. There are many existentialists who are theists. Uh, what they deny is any sort of... Uh, What's a theist? Uh, so T-H-E? It's, it's atheist without the A. Oh. So a makes it negative. So like oh. atheist. Uh, uh, so theists are people who believe in In God. a religion. Exactly. Oh, I see. You, that's why you can have like polytheism. Right. Right. Uh, religions that believe in many gods. Uh, okay. So a theist is someone who just believes in some sort right. of God. Right. Make sense? Yeah. Um, so there are theists who believe in it, obviously, but what they deny is any sort of teleology. Teleology. Hmm. Teleology. Theology? Nope. Teleology. T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Like teleology. So why'd you say tele then? Teleology. Well, it's not teleology. What would it be? You just said it's T-E-L-E. Yeah, teleology. It couldn't be tele. Why not? There's no English word that has a consonant E, consonant E, and it's pronounced E-E. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know, why. I didn't make up a word. So anyways, what the word means is they refute the notion that God made the universe mm-hmm. or our world or us with any particular purpose in mind. Okay. Which pretty well means that God does exist. He did create this, but just without purpose or meaning. He was right. like, I'm just going to put you guys right here. You can just do whatever you want. <laughs> right, right, right. Um... And then I'm going to go over here in this galaxy and put another planet over here. Yeah, I'm going to do all. You guys do what you want. We're have lots of fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, therefore, we are born into a world in which we, our world, and our actions lack any real inherent importance, which is scary. <laughs> yes. This is a fundamental component of existentialism. They refer to it as the absurd. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it is a technical term for existentialists. It is the search for answers in an answerless world. Right. All right. So we are creatures who need meaning. Okay. But we are abandoned in a universe full of meaninglessness. So we cry into the wilderness and get no response. <laughs> but we keep crying anyways. <laughs> that is a quote from... Uh, there's, there's, and you know what? I'm actually realizing I get a lot of my information from this YouTuber. They have a channel called, uh, Crash Course. Jeff, did you not listen to me last week? I told you I basically just played throughout the entire video. And I did it again this week. Did you? He's great. Hank is his name. From Crash Course? The guy with the glasses. Yeah, he's great. He's awesome. He's phenomenal. Yeah, that's literally philosophy part one and two 
has been brought to you by Crash Force Philosophy. So you could just go listen to his YouTube channel and just not pay attention to our podcast, maybe. I mean, he definitely does it better. Because like, you know when you're trying to paraphrase something that's uh-huh. better than you? So you're having to like dumb down the language to do it. And you're just like, this isn't better. But anyways, he said that, and I laughed. Nice. But we keep crying anyways. <laughs> and we do. Ah. So since there is no telelology, uh, the world wasn't created for a reason. And it doesn't exist for a reason. Right. If there's no reason for any of this, then there are also no absolutes to abide by so no kantianism no there's no cosmic justice there's no fairness there's no order no rules right right um existentialism took a leap during world war ii where the horrors of nazism and germany and the holocaust led many people to abandon any belief in any ordered world right so uh, Sarte faced this issue of meaninglessness and explored one of the most agonizing aspects of existentialism. Okay. So it's not the world's lack of meaning, meaning, but it's terrifying abundance of freedom. Right. Right. So at a glance, this obviously sounds great. Freedom is something that we all seem to strive for and we all seem to, sh- to fight for it. Right. Um, in an existential perspective... If there are no guidelines for our actions, then each of us is forced to design our own moral code. Right. To invent a morality to live by. Mm. So you might think that there may be some authority that you could look to for answers. Yeah. So like your government, parents, mentors, the church, whatever. But it actually turns out they are people as well. Right. People who also do not have any answers. People who have to figure out how to live their lives the same way you do as well. So he therefore concluded that the best thing you could do is live authentically. Okay. So you need to accept the full weight of your freedom in light of the absurd. So the absurd being the answerless world. Right. You have infinite possibilities of purpose and meaning for your life. Yes. Because no one determined it for you. Right. So you have to accept the full weight of that. Right. Right. They have a full book to choose from. You have to recognize that any meaning your life has. Mm-hmm is given to it solely only by you. Right. So that's the only way you can do it. He also believed that if you decide to follow a path, path, sorry, carved out to you by previous people, so like your parents, teachers, government, church, yes. etc., then you are living in what he calls bad faith, okay. which is the refusal to accept the absurd. Right. Um, so you are sticking your head in the sand and living your life as if it was given some sort of meaning, meaning that you have not assigned to it. Right. Right. Um, so that is the existentialism in its definition and just, you know, meat and potatoes, we'll call yes. it. Obviously, there's many different philosophers, many different um, people who kind of talk about it. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of its framework. Right. Anyway, so you have an understanding of what it actually is. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's funny because we keep talking about it as like, oh, is this the right decision? Did I take the right career? Like, and we kind of make jokes of like, that's an existential crisis. And I, Catherine, uh, well, I call it, with Catherine, call it existential Jeff. Right. Yeah. Like if, if I got the, if I'm sad or yes. my melancholy. Yes. I say, well, existential Jeff is here. You know what I mean? Questioning every decision I've ever made. Like, right. what am I doing with my life? It's yeah. that kind of a thing. Yes. But it's a little bit more rooted a little bit deeper yes it's not just like your individual well, i mean the existentialism is your individual purpose and meaning yeah but it's like all of mankind's yes uh purpose and meaning since we don't have the essence before existence 
Right. It's the ex- weird to me that it took that long for people to question whether there's a God. Or, like, I guess to publicly question. Yeah. The science wasn't there to back it up. So I there was, guess, there yeah, was a lot what, of, yeah. like, things that happened. Right. That they that's were like, right. why did this happen? They're like, mm, God did that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, tsunamis. Yeah. Like, yeah. how could they possibly justify tsunamis? Yeah. Other than God's matcha. Or also, like, you know, no one had even remotely been near going to space. Mm. So, like, you know, the space travel definitely changed a lot of that, I would imagine. Yeah, well, they started questioning God long before space traveled. No, I know. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, but little, little things like that. I well, think. they thought that, um, <laughs> what was it? Horus brought the sun on a ship <laughs> and then brought the moon back yes, on yeah, the way yeah. back. Was it Horus? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that is there. And so when they gave an example of living your authenticity right right living uh, my authentic self hashtag authentic self living my best life mm. <laughs> um and kind of how to do that right uh and your own meaning and purpose so they gave an example of a young boy who i guess during a, a time of war let's just say world war ii for example okay. uh was asked or conscripted to go to war okay he wanted to fight for his country uh he thought that that was the moral right thing to do to be there with his brothers to fight in the war right but he would be leaving home his mother, who was by herself, terminally ill. Right. To care for herself, which she couldn't. Right. So going to war would mean leaving her to die by herself. Right. Um, but being with her would leave his comrades, his country, that kind of like pride yes. to go towards something. Right. right. Um, so which decision does he make? Right. Is he a small pawn in a big game of chess uh, where he has little significance? Or is he a big pawn in a small game, right? He has a huge impact on this one person's life. I feel like that analogy would have been better if you said, or is he the queen in a game of chess? The size, uh, the physical size of the game feels irrelevant. Yeah, I think it you're right. It still work the I think, same I way. think you're right. Yeah, yeah, So I can't see the pieces. Are you in? <laughs> How know. big is his mother? <laughs> Your mom is so big. <laughs> she could be the queen of the giant chess She board. was the whole checkers board. <laughs> Your mama's so big, she wear checker pants, and 16 kids play chess on her ass. <laughs> Your mama's so fat, when she walked down the road with checker pants, the kids play hopscotch. <laughs> oh, if you can't laugh. Your mama's so fat. All right, this is a terminally ill mother, Evan. <laughs> The Queen's Gambit was filled on her ass. <laughs> Whole set. <laughs> oh, wait. But she was also wearing checkered pants. Because <laughs> that's the chess joke. Anyway, moving oh, forward. I'm moving forward. So, what decision does he make? You're asking me? I'm asking you. It's no longer rhetorical. I mean, this is a this is a scenario based on individual preference for sure and that's 100 percent it that's, that's the answer the, yeah there's no the answer there is no philosophical moral theological moral no. compass there's no argument that could be made no. to justify a or b it is solely that one person's authenticity what drives them their purpose their meaning their moral compass that they've designed and adjusted themselves yeah. that can drive them to that decision yeah. and therefore they shouldn't be you know, ostracized for choosing A or B. No. Right? So that's I mean, just they a, will be for choosing either. 
well, well, I mean, maybe. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is that in our own individual scope to try to find our own existence and meaning and purpose, our own essence, yeah. it is our own decisions. Right. Right. Uh, so that was an interesting one that they use as an example. Um, so then it brings into the conversation of artificial intelligence. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I don't have any notes about it because I feel like it was a it was a whole other topic in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be a great topic to talk about, actually. But that would be, like, philosophically speaking, yeah. it would be essence before existence. Right? Yes, for sure. Right? But as a human created them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and does Are we it, talking like robot? Is that more no, no, not like physical robots, okay. but the idea of artificial intelligence, right? Um, but when you look at AI, a lot of AI will start at A, but then exponentially grow to something well beyond its initial form, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of the point. It's artificial intelligence that's constantly learning, right? I right. told you about the chess game that they, they played on the ill mother's butt. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, did we talk about that? I don't know. It's ringing a bell, but I couldn't tell it to Yeah, you. it's okay. Um, but yeah, so it's like, even though its essence would come before its existence, its existence would ultimately outgrow its essence. Right. Just in the nature of the definition of what it is and what it can do. Right. So what does come first, the chicken or the egg, or the essence or the existence? Do you know right. what I mean? Um, so AI brings an interesting twist into it, where it is man-made, technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, its essence and its idea would come before its existence. You know? Yes, but then its essence could change. Exactly. So, like, did its essence come first? Well, a essence came first. Yeah. So, its ability to be intelligent, yeah, artificially, yeah. Um, gives it the ability to choose its own essence in a sense as well, its Super own purpose and meaning, technically, yeah. right? So, yeah. what does like? Did we create its essence, or is it finding it on its own? Right. So, what is its existential angst, and where does it file within that kind of spectrum? Yeah. I right? like it. I like it a right? lot. There's a lot of lot of things there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while we're talking about identity and trying to figure things out, you know, our spatial temporal continuity theories. And, yes. Um, so, if we have an object yes. that has essence before existence. Okay. Let's take a knife. Yep. Sure. Right? The essence is the blade is, rubber or? Uh, no, this one is not. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> the handle is made of rubber. Uh, okay, good. But the essence of the knife was to be created in order to cut things. Yes. Right? It has a blade specifically made for that, and that is its existence, or its essence in its existence. What if the blade can no longer cut? Right. So, like, it just got too dull. It got too dull. So, does it lose its essence, and therefore it is not what it is, or what it was meant to be? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I mean... I think I can definitely see both sides, but I'm more on the side of it hasn't lost its essence. Because if you look at it, at no point would you be like, that's not a knife. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you could say, like, it's a bad knife, but... Yeah, but the descriptor for the object is still a knife. Yeah. Unless the blade was removed. But is the definition of the item, like, what it is, or is it the physical looking of the knife? Because a knife could look like a knife, like a toy knife or a play knife. Good point. It could look like a knife, and you'd be like, that's a knife. Or is what a knife is, is an object that looks like this, mm. but performs this action, right? Right. Um, I mean, you just need the descriptor, I guess. Like, it's a toy knife. Which is... So you give an extra descriptor, but the knife still doesn't mean knife in, if, if we're yeah. talking... Well, let's think, okay, so uh, I guess you could always say fake something or toy something exactly, in yeah. front of it, yeah. but then it's no longer that. 
because you're adding something else to it. So it's a yeah. different entity, right? Yeah. So a toy, well, even a toy knife, yeah. right? A toy knife in its essence is to look like a knife but not function like a knife. It is a toy knife. Right. But what if it can no longer be used as a toy? What if it actually becomes a knife? It gets sharp for some reason. <laughs> is it no longer a toy knife? <laughs> now it's just a knife. <laughs> now it's just a knife. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There is no spoon. There is no spoon. Uh, it's uh, a good point. It's a really good point. You know what I mean? So I like when you're, that. you're looking at things, is it its definition? And does it lose its essence based on the definition? Or does it lose yes, its existence? I, th- I, think, I think you'd have to say a knife and a toy knife are different things. Yes, they right? are. Because then, like you just said, if you reverse it and the knife gets sharper and becomes mm-hmm. a real knife, you'd stop saying toy. It's a real so knife. It's a new thing now. It's a knife, not so a toy a, knife. A knife is described as its definition. I think so. Its essence defines its existence. Otherwise, you need an extra descriptor. And as soon as you take the descriptor away, it's, it's a different thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, if we go back to spatial tim now. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. So like if we look then at something where existence comes first, right? The essence doesn't nearly define it. It de- so I guess whatever the precursor is would define yes. the other the other thing. So AI would be interesting then. It really would be. Because the essence comes first. Yeah. But when the essence changes, yep. does AI change? Right. Does its existence change? Mm-hmm. Interesting thought, hey? It's very interesting. I like it a lot. Yeah. So Back to what we, you know, call our existential crisis. Now it has more meaning. But you yeah. finding your purpose, your essence, your meaning as Evan Smith to justify your existence in this meaninglessness world. So did I step in the river twice or? Uh, who's to say? If we're talking about water particles. <laughs> Then no. <laughs> then no. No. You did not touch the same particles twice. Particles, no. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy your break. Welcome, Welcome back. <laughs> oh, we could have timed that. For the first time, we could have timed it. <laughs> Three, two. Welcome, Welcome back. back. And we're back from our break. Did you enjoy your break? I enjoyed my break. Guess what we did? Ordered pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pizza, pizza in my belly. Yum, yum. Give me pizza. P-I-Z-Z-A. Oh, I was, I was Give in a pizza. different time signature when you just did that. Do you know what I forgot to do? No. Pour another spicy Caesar. Oh, do you need another break? Oh, we'll see. Maybe I'll just let you keep talking. I'll keep going, yeah, yeah, from up in the kitchen. Just maybe acknowledging your intelligence from afar. Uh, I'm not digging this lack of table. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't look very comfortable, bud. No, I don't know what to do with my iPad. It's very irritating. That's okay. Okay, I'm going to do this. Get comfy. Oh, God. Sorry, everybody. Oh, dear. Yeah, this is really awkward watching him trying to... I just sit down, crisscross applesauce, have the iPad, and the <laughs> the mic is now in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom is so fat. <laughs> Your mom's gonna stop wearing them checkered pants. <laughs> um, so last week we discussed categorical imperatives, or as it is offered often referred to, Kantian ethics, which can be summarized to be living by a strict set of rules. Yeah. There are no exceptions or excuses for violating moral rules like lying, stealing, killing, etc. 
Yes. Let's take Batman, for example. Ooh. Batman has made a vow not to kill. Mm-hmm. Oh, he'll pound the piss out of you. Oh, yes. But he won't kill you. No, 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 no. Daddy! Nailed it. I mean, he won't He won't kill you, though. He'll just leave you dangling from a bridge by your shoelaces. Oh, yeah. But you'll be alive. Yeah. You might be passed out. No matter what Joker does, Batman won't kill him. Batman believes in the system. For a vigilante, he is a pretty continuistic kind of guy. I, he, I guess so. Yeah, you can say that. He's got his vow of not to kill, and that's it. Yeah. But Joker keeps coming back. He will continue to escape from prison. He will continue to kill people and torture people and make Gotham City hell mm-hmm. over and over. It could easily be argued that Batman should just kill Joker next time. He's given him so many chances, and Joker isn't going to learn... Nor is he going to rot away in prison forever. He'll just keep getting out. It could easily be argued that by not killing Joker, Batman is partially responsible for anything that happens to anyone at the hand of Joker after he's put him in prison. It could also be Batman's existential crisis that his essence is to be a vigilante and to fight crime. And if he eventually defeats crime, he won't have crime to fight. And therefore, his existence will outweigh his essence. So he just keeps him around just in case. Just just to keep his essence valid. Yeah. Um, uh, which begs the question, if you have the ability to stop a killer and you don't, are you morally pure because you didn't kill? Or are you morally dirty because you refused to do what needed to be done? Is this rhetorical? Yeah, kind of. Okay. But you can answer if you want. Um, it's the, it's the, the tall tale of like, a life for a life. Is it one life for one life? In which case, kill the killer before he kills one person. Oh, I mean, no, because then a life is a life. But then it's like, is that killer going to go kill three people? Because then math. Like, do you know what I mean? Well, we're going to get to some math about that exact thing very soon. Do you talk about the presidency and no. like nuclear weapons and nuclear arms? I do not. There was a there was a documentary I watched recently about the U.S. and North Korea mm-hmm. uh, recently being at arms. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. At arm's length. I mean, we all should be at two arm's length. Social distancing. Physical distancing, Evan. <laughs> we we can be social. We just need to be physically distanced. <sighs> Idiot! Uh, but talking about, like, can one, like, the killing and uh, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Remember how I talked about that in one of the episodes? That they actually went back to thank the U.S., like, yes. a couple of years ago. Because otherwise they would have known hundreds of thousands of more people would have died right. because they would have kept up the war. Yeah. So it's kind of like, that was the right decision, arguably. Yes. You right. know what I mean? So it's like yeah. number of deaths per number of deaths. Yeah. It's like, how many deaths, like, how many lives are you worth, exactly. Evan Smith? Exactly. A many, obviously. Obviously. Um, so in the 18th century, the founders of utilitarianism, British philosophers Jeremy Bentham and his successor, John Stuart Mill, Ooh. certainly thought the latter. Uh, meaning you would be dirty if you refused to kill the killer. Yes. So what is utilitarianism? Well, it is a branch of consequentialism. You can see consequence being the root in that word, can't you, Jeff? Yes, as one would say. So unlike Kantian ethics, we care less about the intent behind the behavior and more on the consequences of our actions. Utilitarianism focuses solely on the results or consequences and treats intentions as irrelevant. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Clearly, utilitarian said that because that's a utilitarian kind of view, right? You can think about all the great things you want to do all you want or even intend to do something good. But if it results in a bad consequence, then it wasn't actually a good action. Isn't that Kantian? No. 
utilitarian. So if, like, say... So Kant thinks about the action. Utilitarian thinks of the... Consequence. Okay. So Kant says, do not kill. Utilitarians will say, well, you could kill if you're going to save 17 people. Sure. Right? Um... Uh, so now, Bentham and Mill didn't really create utilitarianism. They popularized the belief, and certainly the term, but it was talked about by ancient philosophers for years, as mm. you can imagine. Aristippus, Aristotle, and when he wasn't selling spices on the weekends, Epicurus. <laughs> I'll talk about it in some Have I made that joke before? I don't know, but it's great. Well Thank done. You. Thank you. And this time, though, um, at this time, sorry, it would have been uh, part of the family of theories referred to as hedonism. Hedonistic theories are defined by pleasure playing the central role, which I think we can all get behind. Pun intended. <laughs> Your mama's so fat. <laughs> they used her ass with a checkerboard and philosopher's stone. <laughs> philosopher's stone? Or the chessboard. <laughs> I don't get it. Where they're going down to go get the philosopher's stone, and they have to oh, play big, big chess. Wizard's chess. Because we're talking about philosophers, I was like, "What's a philosopher's stone?" Like, it didn't, oh, didn't it even didn't go to Harry Potter. To Harry Potter at all. Um, so our behavior is determined by desires to increase pleasure and to decrease pain. Good consequences equal good actions, not the other way around. All actions should be measured in terms of the happiness or pleasure that they produce. Happiness, as they coined it, is really everyone's final end. Ugh. Coming not end as in death. Oh, I understand, but objective. Yeah. Coming back to Kant's hypothetical imperatives from last week, the if-then statements. So if you study, then you will get a good grade. If you get a job, then you will make money. If you want to be best buds, then you will have a podcast. Mm-hmm. But why do we want to get a good grade? Why do we want money? Why do we want our podcast? You could argue, I want a good grade to heighten my intellect, or a degree that will allow me to have a certain career. I want money to support my family. I want a podcast because I want fame and fortune. (laughs) But if you look at every choice we make, even all of those, at the root of it is, I want what I want because I think it will make me happy. Right? If the podcast didn't make us happy, we wouldn't do it. If getting good grades didn't make you happy because you'd get the good career, which will eventually make you happy, you wouldn't do it. Sure. Right? This is one of the few things that everyone in the world has in common. And utilitarians believe that that's what, we should draw, that's what should drive our morality as well. Like Kant, utilitarians agree that a moral theory should apply equally to everyone. But they thought the way to do it was to ground it in something that's really intuitive. And it certainly is. Seek pleasure, avoid pain. Sure. Easy. Yeah. Just do that. So as we started regarding hedonistic theories, good is equal to pleasant. But utilitarians take it further and say that we ought morally to pursue pleasure and happiness and avoid uh, pain. That's your moral um, philosophy. Sure. There's a slippery slope down that path. The words are coming out of my mouth. So if your entire moral compass is just based on your happiness for yourself. Yeah. But utilitarians are not egoists. No. In egoistic theory... Um, everyone ought to morally pursue their own good. In utilitarianism, it's other regarding and says that we should pursue pleasure or happiness not just for ourselves, but for as many sentient beings as possible. We should always act so as to produce the greatest good for the greatest number. Okay. This is known as the principle of utility. Um, who do we know who said this about the greatest good? 
for the greater good. Oh, Grindelwald. Grindelwald and, and Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore. Yes, so it's basically Grindelwald was a full-on utilitarian. Yeah. For the greater good. But it's not all sunshine and lollipops in the utilitarian world, Jeff. No. Sometimes you may have to morally choose the thing that brings most pleasure to the most people, meaning that you got to take one for the team. Mm-hmm. Sacrificing your own pleasure in order to produce more good overall. So the example they give in Crash Course Philosophy was when it's your birthday, like me, tomorrow. Yeah. And your family wants to take you out and says, choose wherever you want to go. Khan says, choose whatever place you like the best and go there because choosing somewhere else would be a lie and you shouldn't lie. The principle of utility states that if you know half the people are vegetarians, it's morally wrong for you to choose to go to wing in it. Right? Yeah, okay. Because you're putting your pleasure over those of other people. And, and, you had and the knowledge. morality should be around, is, right. is pleasure-based. Sure. And you okay. had the knowledge that wing in it wouldn't bring the majority of people happiness and still chose to go there anyway mm-hmm. because you put your happiness above others. But you should have your happiness at the equal level of others. Yeah. So if, say there's two of, two, it say it's me and you. Yes. And you want to go to Wigan and I don't. Well, then we just flip a coin or just we decide. Each of each a pair of plum. Right. Yeah. Each of, our, each of our opinions are equal. Sure. If, there's, if it's me, you, and Tiff, and you know Tiff's vegetarian is not going to eat the wings, well then, and I don't want Wigan at the moment, then we shouldn't go there. Sure. Like that makes sense. Yeah. To call it morality, though, is a little bit of a... But, that, but it, utilitarians do. They're saying that yes. you should make your moral choices based on that. Yeah. But it kind of muddies the word morality, though. It, it kind of gives it a different definition. Other, like, I guess morality is, is, a, is a... No, because your, your moral... Compass, or like it's... Compass a, it's is... The direction the in which makes direction. Good. Yeah. So that doesn't muddy the waters. That's, that's what your morality is. That's how you choose to make choices. Isn't that what your morality is? What your belief system on how to live your life? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. So even though you've chosen that action that would produce the most overall happiness for the group, but has less happiness for you than other alternatives. The trick with this is we are all a little bit selfish, especially Slytherins. Mm. Um, as a general rule, everyone cares more about their own happiness than that of anyone else's. I say general because that's what they said, but also because I'm married to Tiffany, and I'm not sure that's true of Tiffany. No, I don't think so either. Right? No. Um, but in terms of morality, uh, utilitarians believe that you are no more special than anyone else. Your preferences and interests matter exactly the same as every other person, which again, on the surface, seems like a good philosophy to live by. We all certainly do our best to care about other people, but it's effort. You know what I mean? At times, it's effort to be like, oh, I won't do that because I care about that person. It takes no effort to care about ourselves. No. It really doesn't. It's just instinct. Yes. That's that's like natural selection. That's exactly. like your body instinctively trying to care for you. Yeah. The stakes are much higher when there's a choice that involves us than a stranger. Yes, right? absolutely. So because of this, utilitarians suggest that we make our moral decisions from the position of a benevolent, disinterested spectator. Benevolent? Uninterested? Disinterested. Yeah. Um, so rather than you thinking about what you should do in a situation, you think about what would you do if you were advising a group of strangers about what they should do. Because... This chance, chances are that changes your answer. Once you take yourself out of the equation, you're no longer emotionally invested. You are a spectator and no longer a participant. Yep. So you should strive to, excuse me, do that when making decisions for yourself. The pro- approach is much more likely to result in a fair, unbiased judgment. So let's get to an example, because that's let's, what we all love. Let's do it. 20th century British philosopher Bernard Williams came up with this thought experiment. You're on a botanical expedition, Jeff. 
in South America when you happen upon a group of 20 indigenous people and a group of soldiers. The group Are you attracted to the soldiers? Maybe. The group of indigenous people is about to be executed for protesting their oppressive regime. For some reason, the leader of the soldiers offers you the chance to shoot one of the prisoners. Just for, he thinks it'll be a fun time. The soldier says, if you shoot one of the prisoners, he'll let the other 19 go. If you refuse... All 20 of them die. All 20 of them die. What do you do? Uh, Like... Is it... Okay, I'm going to say something really bad. No, you're not. You're going to say something that we're all thinking. Do I get to choose the person? Oh, no, it's not where I thought you were going. (laughs) I mean, out of the random 20? Yeah. Like, based on age, you mean, or something? Based on age, or health, or if a volunteer is willing to sacrifice themselves, it does change I, the, the I, compass a it bit. It does. Like, well, I hear some options. Because, like, just say they're all they're all the same person. Yes, and none of them want to die or no. sacrifice themselves. So, the, answer, the short answer is yes. You kill one person, you save kill, 19. Right. Yes. Does it change if they're children? All of, ni- all, all of all them are children? No, it doesn't, because okay. it's all equal. But for some people, it would. It'd be like, well, like, I can't kill a kid. No, but that's your own morality speaking. No, I, I agree. But I mean, like, it's 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 nineteen children. Yes. Well, ex- no, you would exactly. be effectively killing Did, twenty children right. instead of killing one child. Or what if you? What if they're all adults except for one, but you have to kill the kid? Well, how old are the adults? In their forties. Mm, they've had a full life. No <laughs> joking. <laughs> but, but but you the, know what I mean. It changes. It, it. it changes the equation. That's like, what I'm saying. Do we change? get to choose? Because if it's no. like a really old person who's like gonna die tomorrow anyway. Well, that's it, yeah. But that's one situation. Yeah. So or vice versa. If it's you yeah, know what I mean. Exactly. You, it could be anything. Does, yeah. does it change if they aren't indigenous? For some people, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say. It doesn't. You're for right. You and it I. does. It, yeah. You're, you know right, I mean? you're right. You're right. You're right. You're um, right. Does it change if the one you have to shoot is Kevin, who formerly worked at Subway before you got him fired? <laughs> Kevin remember Kevin I do remember Kevin uh, so Bernard Williams actually came up with this thought experiment as a critique of utilitarianism mm-hmm. in this situation it's pretty clear that the choice that should be made is to shoot one man so that 19 will be saved yeah Williams argues that no moral theory ought to demand the taking of an innocent life so that you shouldn't come down to your moral decisions in that moment in terms of I mean you would but you shouldn't come down like it, sh- it shouldn't be like well I'm a utilitarian so I have to do this Sure. Williams, in a Kantian fashion, argues that it's not your fault that the soldier is a piece of shit. Well, no, yeah. You shouldn't have to get blood on your hands to solve the situation. So this, uh, so what this proves is how demanding of a moral theory utilitarianism really is. So I guess, in, in theory, you should look at it as you are able to save 19 people. Right. That the soldier is killing one person. You just happen to be pulling the trigger. It is not your choice to pull the trigger necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Like you are choosing to save 19 people instead of killing 20. There is an element about how you think about it for sure. Yeah. Uh, the belief that is that with utilitarianism is that it's important to take action. Hank of Crash Course Philosophy explains, we live in a world where sometimes people do terrible things. And if we're the ones who happen to be there and we can do something to make things better, we must even if that means getting our hands dirty. And if you sit back and watch something bad happen when you could have prevented it, your hands are dirty anyway. Right? So it's, it's a, what you were saying. It's about your state of mind. Rather than thinking about having to kill one man, think of it as saving 19. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, that man was dead already because before you stumbled on the scene, yes. they were going to kill 20 of them. He was going to die, yes. Right? So all of them were dead. You saved 19 of them by killing one. Yes. 
Um, so you've got a couple options. How do you feel about utilitarianism so far? I understand it. No, I know. But like, are you like, I like this morality level? Uh, I think a balance of both. Hmm. I think a balance of Kantianism, if that's a word. Kantian con- con- ethics, I think they call Kantian ethics and um, uh, utilitarianism yep. um, is, is kind of healthy. I think yeah. a, a, a nice blend. Well, in case you are leaning a little more this way, you do have two options. Uh, when Bentham and Mill first proposed the theory of utilitarianism, it was referred to as act utilitarianism or classical utilitarianism. Sure. It states, in any given situation, you should choose the action that produces the greatest good for the number of people. Yep. Greatest number of people. Sometimes that act would produce the greatest good for the greatest number of people can just seem wrong. Suppose a doctor has five patients, all who need a different organ transplant to survive, and they are going to die in the very near future if they don't get their transplant quick. In another room in the hospital, Kevin, formerly of Subway, Mm. is in because he's got to have a hernia removed from the stress of losing his job and trying to fend for his family with his minimum wage income and health benefits gone. (laughs) Now, Kevin happens to be a match for all five donors. Okay. You could kill Kevin. Completely covered up. Something goes wrong in surgery. That wasn't anybody's fault. You'll never get caught. You can save your other five patients, but you have to choose to kill an innocent, healthy person and are now a murderer. Yep. So obviously, you shouldn't do that. In no. that scenario, right? No. So even though that's what classical utilitarianism is, yep. it's like, mm, maybe The greater good that. of five people over one, yes. Right. Yes. Does it change if the person isn't a healthy person? Yeah. They're ill, their organs are unaffected, they have no quality of life, they're being kept alive by machines. They could live for months attached to the machines, at which point your five patients will be dead. Right? So now should you kill the person? They're not healthy, but their organs are fine. Is this rhetorical, or are you asking? No, I'm actually asking. Uh... Because now we're talking about quality of life. Yeah. Right? So you're talking, I'm just saying that this is a person who's a vegetable, yeah. more or less. Yes. And no offense, man. I was, I was just about to <laughs> say, real, real PC there, yeah. bud. <laughs> um, but their organs are fine. Sure. This probably doesn't happen very often. But let's just assume in this weird... No, I think way. it actually happens... I think... Like, they say they're brain dead and their organs are fine. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So then, they're not coming back. Yeah. But their family has kept them on life support. Yeah. You have the power as the doctor. You know they're a match for all five patients who are going to be live a great life. Yes. You could like somehow just the plug gets pulled and it's some weird technical error and it's nobody's fault. Yeah. I mean, the, the answer is, is no. Okay. Right. But ethically, I think you should present it to the family. To say, right. to right. say like, yeah. this is... Here's the, the situation. Here's, like, same thing we talked about before. I realized that afterwards with, with Kant is similarly to, you know, the presidential thing where we were like, um, listen, you, are, you don't have to lie. Just don't disclose all of the truth. And there's yeah. a way you can say things to make it to butter it up a little bit. Yeah. It's the same thing, uh, the discussion that you asked me about um, someone got into a car accident and they died. It's like, did they die a horrific death? Yeah, it's yeah. what you say. It's like, no, no, no. You tell the truth. You just don't tell all the truth. You just don't lie. Right. So you don't say, yes, he died right away. But you don't say, actually, for the last six minutes, he drowned to death. It was horrific. Right, but the question you say, is, Listen, if they ask. Well, yeah, yeah. But what you say is, you know what? I was not there. I did not experience it. But from the medical, what we can see is, unfortunately, they did not die from impact. They died from asphyxiation. Now, that being said, they could have been unconscious. They might not have felt anything. We don't know that answer. No, but what if you do know the answer? You don't know the answer. You can't no, tell. No, you did in the moment. They did know. They watched him suffer and die. No, but they like, you know, I don't know. Like, let's get real morbid. But like, his fingernails had come off. So he clearly had clawed at the window. Or what, you know what I mean? 
So it's like in in that situation, the one I described to you, they yeah. did know. They knew for certain he fought in the yeah. car. Yeah. So if they ask, do you disclose that? I mean, we don't have to disclose again. No, no, but do, do you know what I mean? I think in this particular instance, like it's, you know, there is a third option. The third option is to not pull the plug, mm-hmm. not not do it, yes. but present it in an opportunity as uh, an opportunity for the family of, well, listen, they are an organ donor. It says yes. on their driver's license. I agree. Right now, the quality of life, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. In the they thought do experiment, their job. that's not an option. I but know. in real life, yes. And I'm pretty sure on an episode of Grey's that does happen. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I think it would be. Well, I mean, I don't know if, if if we want to get into ethics and the legality of it. As a doctor, are you able to go to a patient's family and say, "Hey, I, listen, I don't know. I think I think you can though. I think they did in this in this scenario. Yeah. I, I mean, if the, I guess if the family is questioning pulling the plug, if they're not, well, then, I mean, yeah, and I think, yeah. anyways, we're yeah. we're we're deep diving. Anyway, here's another example though. What if the the person that you're going to kill, who's very healthy or not healthy, I understand, uh, but I know, I know, yeah, brain dead, is a convicted rapist or murderer? Yeah, same thing. All right? It's like... Yep. Take an eye for a knife. And in every scenario, you were doing good for the greatest number of people because it's about bringing happiness and pleasure and avoiding pain. So in all of those scenarios, as a pure utilitarian, you should kill the person. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, pain is pain no matter who's experiencing it. It's harsh, but it's true. So the death of Kevin is no worse than the death of one of your patients. In fact, it's five times less than the death of five of them. Sure. Uh, but at the end of the day, you still killed the guy, a sad, lonely guy whose wife left him after he got fired from Subway. Ooh. Yeah, this is all your fault. It is my fault, These yes. types of thought experiments lead some utilitarians to come up with option two. <laughs> Rule utilitarianism. <laughs> I ordered pizza, by the way. Okay. Good. Rule utilitarianism is the second type. Utilitarianism. The first... What am I saying? Clap. (laughs) Rule utilitarianism says that we ought to live by rules that, in general, are likely to lead to the greatest good for the number of people. So basically, the only thing they put it in was in general. Yeah. Just to make it a little bit clearer, in certain situations, it doesn't apply. So still, there will be situations where killing an innocent person will lead to the greatest good for the largest number. But with rule utilitarianism, it's more important to think long-term and on a larger scale. In the Sturgeon thought experiment... There would be a society of innocent people just constantly being taken off the street and harvested for their organs. Yeah. If that was the case. Yes. Right? Yes. Which has a lot less utility than having to live in constant fear of this happening. Yes. Right? So rural utilitarianism allows us to refrain from acts that might maximize utility in the short run and follows rules that will maximize utility for the majority of time. Yep. Right? That makes sense. So one of the main thought experiments of ethical dilemmas is the trolley problem. Okay. And in fact, you already know what the trolley problem is. Because it's the surgeon experiment. That's a version of the trolley problem. Okay. But at its root, um, there are various ver- um, versions Oh, detach the, the lagging trolley to save all the people in the front and you kill all the uh, people in the ish. back? No, yes, not really, but oh, okay. yes. Um, so, um, it, what am I trying to say? Take your time, old man. (laughs) Lord, jeez. There are various versions of it, all that sort of may change your perspective on it, depending on, even though technically at the root of them all, they're the same problem and you should answer the same every time. Yeah. Um, So the original trolley problem was- Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have an interesting thought experiment before you do this. Okay. So in each time you've given an example, 
you've started in the most basic like black and white example like one person for five yeah right but then each time the situation changes where you kind of muddy a little bit well they're they're in convicted murderer or yeah. their family says it's okay like do you know what i mean each time you make it a little bit grayer of a decision yeah why don't you start with a gray decision and then work your way to black and white and see if it changes their perspective from there mm, yeah that's a good thought experiment or just just start just do as your own thinking but do you know what i mean like yeah. you start black and white and you go no this is absolute right but as you muddy it it becomes more gray and it makes the decision harder yeah do you know what i mean we'll i wonder does, this, does the decision become easier if you work in the opposite direction well i actually have a comment on that very shortly Ooh. i know uh so the original trolley problem was coined by judith jarvis thompson in 1976 philosophy paper the most basic version is known as a bystander at the switch here's the scenario there's a runaway trolley barreling down the railway tracks Ahead on the tracks, there are five, pe five people tied up and unable to move. The trolley is headed straight for them. You're standing some distance off in the train yard next to a lever. If you pull this lever, the will trolley will switch to a different set of tracks. However, you notice there is one person on that track. You have two options. Do nothing, allow the trolley to kill the five people on the main track, or pull the lever, diverting the trolley onto the side track where it will kill one person. Okay. A utilitarian view says it's obligatory to steer to the track with one man. Yep. According to classical utilitarianism, such a decision would not only be permissible, but morally speaking, the better option. On the other hand, since moral wrongs are already in place in the situation, moving to another track constitutes a participation in the moral wrong, making you responsible for the death when otherwise no one would have been responsible. Uh, no one being as in... If you didn't do anything, the five people would have died. If you weren't there, five people would have died. Okay. But you're there, and you just have, it's not your job to be looking, but you just noticed. You can pull the lever and make it kill that guy. But now you've pulled the lever, and you've made it kill that guy. Y you wouldn't have killed the five people. So are, can we take that same thought and put it into the soldiers and the indigenous people? Okay. Right? You walk upon that situation. Yeah. Right? If you had done nothing, yep. those 20 people would have died. Yep. Right? But you take that gun, you shoot it. Yep. Now you're the one choosing. Right. So it is that same exact same situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so under some interpretations of moral obligation, simply being present in this situation and being able to influence its outcome constitutes an obligation to participate. Yeah. Because you know, yes, you pulled the lever, putting blood and on the your one hands, guy, yeah. but you also you didn't pull the lever and you killed five people mm -hmm. because you had the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Right. To do, deciding to do nothing would be considered an immoral act if one value. If one values five lives over one. Sure. Um, but then in certain situations, maybe you do value certain lives over others. Sure. If they're all strangers, yeah, okay, I will just kill the one guy. If someone else actually moves the lever, but you instructed them to which direction to move in, so you weren't, you didn't pull the crank. Oh, it's the same thing, though. If you instructed them, you but were the you were one. Looking, who... Let's say you weren't even looking. Say your eyes were closed. You're like, uh, pull the lever? Uh, no. But you didn't know the situation. Like, there was five and one. Yeah, you knew the situation, yeah. Okay, so then you, you pulled the lever. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. Um, that's my point. If you know one person, but they're there with the group of five people, so you can kill the one guy, mm. or Catherine happens to be over with the four people. Yeah, okay. So does that change it? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, because like what you go back when you talked about very first off is like right. your own intrinsic... Yeah. happiness yeah. versus it's much more difficult to think intrinsically than extrinsically for other yeah. people's happiness. But you're meant to, in utilitarianism, remove yourself from the situation, right? Exactly, yeah. What if Catherine's the one person and... And five strangers. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, same deal. Yeah. Um, what if you know all the people? Does it matter who the single person is? Uh, like say they're all your. I don't know, let's if they're your, all equally your they're all, your yeah, cousins, they're all your close family. Yeah. And, and like you didn't like one of them more than the other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, same thing though, because that it, that actually would make it. That would it goes equalize back to being it. Easier. It would equalize it exactly. It would equalize it. It's yeah. the same thing as if you knew them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Here's a popular variation. It's called the fat man. The fat. Oh, is the fat man? Yep. Same deal. A trolley's hurly burly track. Fat man coming <laughs> over. Lip foot, white foot. Um, so trolley's hurling down a track towards five people. You're on a bridge under which the train will pass, and you can stop it by putting something heavy in front of it. A fat man! As it happens, there is a very fat man next to you. Your only way to stop the trolley is to push him over the bridge and onto the track, killing him to save five. Okay? It's, it's the exact same principle. Well, interestingly, in studies, the vast majority of people will approve of pulling the switch on the trolley to save five lives. But they wouldn't but actively push somebody. pushing the fat man to save the equivalent people. Mm-hmm. The difference here is that the fat man, in the fat man, you intend someone's death to save five. In the regular trolley problem, there's no intention. The trolley is going one way or the other. You've I got guess to it's, choose. It's the principle of saying, like, so you know how we said with the 20 people and you save one, you kill one to save 19. Yeah. But your thought process is that one person was going to die anyways, right. so I'm saving 19. Right. And the second equation, the fat man was not going to no, die. No, no, He's just going to watch this massacre yeah. as well. Eating his Twinkie. Yeah. And you're like, sorry, bud, you have to die. But he was exactly. never in the equation. Exactly. So absolutely, it is... It's different. It, you pull that lever as opposed to push the fat man. Right. But yes. you should push the fat man and pull the lever if you're a utilitarian. But that doesn't make sense. Why would you? Well, I mean, I guess because you could pull killing, the you're, lever you're, for safe measure, but the fat well, no, man you're not is not on stop the, train the train. If you can push the fat man. No, no but I thought, saying, like, I thought I thought pushing the fat man would save everybody. Would save it all does. six people. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't have to pull the lever if you push the fat man. Now you're just the same ne- problem. Now you're just pushing the lever just for shits. No, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm saying <laughs> it, you push the lever to switch to the one track. Yeah, and also you would push the fat man in the in the fat man scenario. You've got to answer both. You can't say, I mean, people do, but you can't say, well, no, I wouldn't push him because he's not involved. I just actually murdered him. Yeah. But in the other situation, somebody's going to die. But technically, you'd be like, you should be like, yep, yeah, change the one track and also push the fat man. In both scenarios, you should choose that option. I, I, if you're being utilitarian. I, no, no. I understand like the principle of what you are saying. Yeah. I'm getting caught up in the logistics of the situation, <laughs> and I really we should discuss it off air. We should move on, but we'll discuss it off air. <laughs> okay. Um, so the app, this is an application of the doctrine of double effect, which says that one may take action that has bad side effects, but deliberately intending harm, even for good causes, is wrong. So that's why people don't technically go with that. Yes. Furthering the thought experiment, what if the fat man is the fat villain who put the five people on the broken trolley in the first place? The fat bastard? Then it feels like it's your duty to push him off because it's his fault these people are going to die. So you're like, yeah, I'll shove you. Right? Doesn't it? In theory, yeah. Sure. In theory. Uh, So the philosopher Unger has a final example wherein there is a man in his yard. Let's just say for the sake of argument that it's Kevin. Now, Kevin's what wife- did Kevin ever do to that? <laughs> Honestly. No, it's what you did to Kevin that's the problem. Yeah. Now, Kevin's wife left him. He got the house, but she took everything else, including his dog and all of his Star Wars memorabilia. Aww. I forgot to mention, you and Kevin actually really would have got along. You have a lot of similar traits. Yes. For same fans. Huge Star Wars fan. Um, anyway, Kevin, um, all he has left is a hammock that he found in the basement. 
And he remembers carefree days in his younger life where he reveled in just lying in that hammock in the front yard. Not a care in the world. And so, damn it, Kevin's going in that hammock today in the front yard. Up on the hill above Kevin's property, a trolley is hurling down a track towards five people. Excellent. You can divert its path by colliding another trolley with it. If you do, both will be derailed and go down the hill and into Kevin's yard where he's sleeping in his hammock and Kevin will be killed. It's the exact same thing as pushing the fat man. Yeah, it's very similar. Apparently, responses to this are dependent on whether the reader has already encountered the original trolley problem. And this is what you were saying earlier. Going from the gray to the black. Yeah. People who have never heard of the trolley problem um, will tend to go for, don't do it. Don't kill Kevin because he's not um, involved. Involved. Or sorry, wait. Yeah, exactly. Because he's not involved. So you can't do that. Yes. Whereas people who have encountered the trolley problem in an effort to be consistent with their previous answers will say... No, you should kill that guy because he's the one. Exactly, right? one to five. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But if you don't have any preconceived notions of the trolley problem. So does the trolley problem go, like, you don't know that there are six people strapped? Or do they just say there's a trolley going down the track, mm-hmm. and it's unstoppable, and it's going to kill numerous people? Like, how do no, they... No, you know, you know. So you know the problem. Or you, know you just problem. don't go through all these different variations of if it's your cousin or if it's your girlfriend or... Well, yeah. In original part, there's a fat problem, man. it just is what it is. But if you add... You, you, Every one is its own different problem. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the question is, does it change it? Or are you a true classical utilitarian where you always kill the one person? Interesting. All of us would answer no. Do you know what's interesting? If it's a loved one who's the one person, you're not going to do it. Yeah. If we are... We're obviously sitting here talking about this. Yeah. And we're marinating in it. And we're, you know, mm. deep diving. If we were to ever put ourselves, find ourselves, sorry, in a situation where we have to make a decision to this magnitude, we will get stuck in the morality and not be able to choose fast enough. <laughs> because of these conversations? Exactly. But right. it like, you know, ignorance is bliss. Right. Yeah. Instinct, right? Yeah. And you'd obviously deal with the consequences, but it, yeah. like we wouldn't have to discuss the morality and the no. ethics of trying to make the decision more so of living with the consequences of whatever decision yeah. you make. Exactly. Um, Unger also proposed more complex ideas about how much the number of people matter. Does it matter if you say five and kill three or five and two? Is it a complete numbers game? Is it I'll kill mm-hmm. yeah, the less amount of people? Like you know? what? Like five and four. Yeah. Like that's a, you know, it's like scampers or chesses. Either way, you're getting the shits. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, super <laughs> interestingly, the trolley problem frequently comes up in the design of software to control autonomous cars. And this is coming back to your AI. Yeah. Designers have to anticipate situations where a fatal collision appears to be unavoidable. Choices made by the car's software, such as who or what to crash into, can affect the outcome. Right? Example, should the software value the safety of the car's occupants more or less than that of potential victims outside the car? Yeah. And these are conversations they actually have to have. Because if the automatic cars are going to, you know, kick in and stop a crash, what do they drive into? Yeah. Right? And in certain situations, the answer will always be people or whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have you seen iRobot? Have I? Great movie. Yes. Will Smith is a gem, might and I say. Yep. Um, better than Kevin. Yep. But um, they talk about that, the three yeah. moral laws of AI and robots. Yep. Right? And, uh, oh, the parallels. The opening scene when he crashes his car and his daughter is is trapped in the car sinking in the water. Yes. The, the robot looked at the vitals and said, statistically, he had a, high, a better chance of surviving if he saved him yep. versus him trying to save the daughter. Yep. And so he saved him. And ever since then, he hated the robots because they made a... L- 
a yep. logical decision based on probability of survival. Yeah, it's better to save him, and like actually go for him and, and save yes. him than to go yep. for the daughter and both of them die. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, they they had all these conversations and like it was some German, um, like the government had appointed a commission to like look into this, and uh, they basically just came up with a result of like the car can't decide. Yeah. They Leave it to Germans to come up with ethical and moral decision based on saving Germans lives. are inherently I'm just joking. Good. I'm being an asshole. <laughs> uh, but in the TV show, The Good Place, you've probably heard of it, um, <laughs> there's a whole episode dedicated to the trolley problem. It's called The Trolley Problem. Interesting. Can't wait for you to watch it. I can't wait for uh, you to watch it. Me and Catherine were going to watch it uh, two nights ago, yeah. but I had made you a promise last week that I would wait until the end of this oh, episode. Oh, nice. Oh, good. Well, you're going to love it. Um, in a later episode, one of the most wonderful moments of the entire show, which I won't ruin for you, but they present a solution to the trolley problem. Oh. And that solution is sacrifice yourself. And to be the fat man? Well, I mean, I guess. If you're but a there's fat no- man also standing up there, <laughs> then you just jump down. <laughs> but how do you sacrifice yourself in the other instance, and like to stop the train? Or do uh, you- Oh, no. I, don't, I mean, it, it doesn't always work. In the plot of that episode, it's really, really wonderful. Okay. But in every scenario, it's like, yeah, okay, that's not an option. Yeah. yeah. Like you jump down and untie the I one mean, if person. If you're the doctor in the surgeon example and you just kill yourself. You, you kill yourself. And you didn't have. Like they do in the other Will Smith movie, <laughs> Seven Pounds. <laughs> haven't seen it. Oh, first off, if anyone's in the mood for a good cry, yeah. if you're having an existential crisis, go watch Seven pounds. He's in, he's in some heavy hitters. He is. The yeah. Pursuit of Happiness and Seven Pounds are both within like three years of each yeah. other. Pursuit of Happiness. Um, but no, no, no. That's seven his, pounds. That's his kid, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Seven Pounds, way more emotional. Well, yeah, I haven't watched it. He's a doctor. Yeah. And I think. Um, <laughs> Great. Go on with your synopsis. <laughs> strong start. Anyways, uh, he, he gets into a car accident and his wife passed away right at the gate. Right. And so all of a sudden he has no purpose. He's just done. Yeah. Meaningless. Nihilism. Yep. See what I'm doing here? Meaninglessness. Meaninglessnessness. Um, but he spends the rest of his life, which is actively a couple of years, yeah. finding people who are in need of organs. Right. And who are worthy. And giving his own organs. So he goes and finds someone who's blind. And he like follows them all around and learns all about them. And, be like, this and he person. loses seven pounds because of the things that he loses? Yeah, he loses seven seven things. Uh, so like he loses sight, he gives away his heart, his liver, like all How does of he his, give away like, his heart. So what he does the last thing. So is. what he does, he finds people who are worthy of the transplant who couldn't normally get the transplant. Yeah. So what he does is he signs a will saying that all of his organs go to these individual oh. people. He puts himself I'm really ruining this. I hope oh my god, I'm ruining this. I'm ruining this entire movie. I mean I guess. But like just he doesn't lose his eyes while he's alive. No, he kills himself. Yeah, and then he, all the people who he talked to get that piece. Exactly. I understand. Yeah, um, but he does it like anonymously. Right. Anyways, it is a hard, I just, I'm really sorry I just ruined that for you. And for anybody well, who's listening. Like it's like you find out pretty early that's what he's going to do. No, not, I, not really. Oh, it's a little bit of a like a, oh my God, he you, gave his. Uh, yeah, yeah, you oh. realize it after, like, it, it, they, they frame it cinematically that it's not like, I'm gonna kill myself. Give my organs right. It's they. Oh, okay. Anyways, so it's it's qu- and also, you can see it from a mile away when you're right. like halfway through. But even in the act of like you watch it all happen, obviously, yes. it's still um, it's a powerful movie. Yeah, I believe it. But that's the exact same scenario. Will yeah. Smith is just a parallel. Is I indeed. love Will Smith. Will, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on. 
absolutely would. Jada Pinkett, too. Yeah. Wouldn't say no. Anyway, mm. everybody, that is philosophy. Philosophy. I have one more uh, example for you, actually. Please do. Of uh, the scenario. It's not about spatial awareness, is it? Spatial awareness? No, spatial no. temporal <laughs> continuity <laughs> theory. <laughs> it's not about spatial awareness, is it? Um, it's not even really an example, but it's something to think about uh, that's kind of in the same ballpark a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever watched Star Trek? No. No. So the philosophy class I took, we watched an episode of Star Trek. Uh, mm-hmm. Star Trek has a lot of also parallels to philosophy and stuff like that. Right. Um, but in the episode, there's this, uh, I think it's two planets, two worlds that are at war. And okay. they've been at war with each other for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Like right. continuous Centuries, war. Yeah. Like continuous war. Not just like, yeah. we don't like you. And then they yeah. battle for three. Continuous war. Right. And they came to the point where the leaders of the two worlds got together and they said, we still hate each other. We're still going to have war, but let's do it in a civilized way. Right. So they made the decision, instead of bombing and attacking and killing everybody, they played like a board game of risk kind okay. of thing. Or like battleships. Where like they Physically, f- they did play a board game? Well, oh. like kind of like computerized. Okay. It was all computerized. So they'd be like, I'm attacking this city with this bomb. And then what would happen then is the city then would go collect the people who would have died and go execute them. And they bring them into a chamber, and then they die. Really? But all of the infrastructure, the society, everything stays the same because they knew they were going to die anyways because of the constant battle and war. But they they could just at any time actually bomb them. Exactly. But instead, they say, well, instead of completely destroying and killing you, like the culture, the society, the buildings, the structure, everything that is the planet. Just execute the people. Just execute the people. And then, so there's this huge, then obviously like the the Star Trek people come into the middle of this battle and they see this moral dilemma of, oh my God. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's the same sort of principle. It's like, you know, the greater good, let's take a step back instead of it's just being people. Yeah. Let's think of everything. So like, the structure of society, the world, the planet, all the animals, the the infrastructure of the planet, we'll call it. You know what I mean? Are you going to sacrifice that and the people? The people are going to die anyways. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Does yeah. it does it hurt less if the buildings stay and the people die? Does it hurt more if the buildings die? But in the same breath, if let's say the planet does attack each other with bombs mm. and all the infrastructures and buildings are exploded and blah, 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 blah. Would that cause the war to end earlier? Right. And save less people or save more people down the line. Right. So it does, it does have a little bit of that kind of echo to it. And at the same time, you're now the one who has to kill your own people. Yeah. And they, and it sucks. And, I think I want to say instead of it being like I'm bombing Torbay and then everybody in Torbay gets into a thing, it's more so of like it's kind of like a board game. Like they roll a dice and oh, we just killed 35 people and then 35 people are selected randomly to have to be going to kill, right? It's pretty morbid. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they talked about they're like, well, we spent the last 80,000 years building this hospital. So we don't like. We could lose it in an instance when instead we made an agreement that, sure, you killed this hospital, you killed 300 people, let's just kill the 300 people, and we keep the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Pretty bleak, eh? Very bleak. But anyways, that's Star Trek. Mm. That's Wizard's Chess. That's Wizard's (laughs) Chess. Well, everyone, we hope you certainly enjoyed this two-part series of philosophy. Yeah. We hope that you uh, go about your day finding meaning 
purpose and saving people strapped to railway beds. Railway Absolutely. beds? Absolutely. If you run into... Who's who's the one always tying people to railway beds? Uh, Rip Van Winkle. Nope. Nope. That's a person. Is that a person? Rip Van yeah, Winkle. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, Rip saw... Uh, uh, the guy from um, uh, 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 the Canadian Mountie. Ripsaw Falls. Uh, Dundee. Um, yes. What's the villain? Don't know. Ah, uh, what's his name? Don't know. Ah! I know that I knew It's it the was. ride in Universal Studios. It's called Ripsaw Falls. And it's about something Dundee. Not Cro- Crocodile. crocodile. <laughs> it's not Crocodile Dundee. Um, uh, I don't know. Once again, a Mountie always gets his man. Yes. But yes. not always his woman. And this guy with mm. this like twirly black mustache. Yes, yes, and, yes, and he yes, straps yes, her to the railway bed. Don't know. Anyways. If you're ev- if you ever stumble upon yes that we hope that you can make the uh, ethical choice absolutely you live by your own morals and you know what tell us tell us what you, how you live in these days we'd like to know it'd be interesting sure you know and uh, as always we would like you to head to our Facebook our Instagram we would like you to like things we would like you to love things heart things and share things and tell friends about things that we do. Yes. And if you're looking for meaning and purpose, please go uh, to wherever you listen to your podcast, specifically the Apple Podcast, rate and review, and shout us from the hills. Shout it loud. Shout it proud. Mm-hmm. If you would like to email us a topic that you would like us to do, we are happy to do so. Just send the message to info.splainin at gmail.com. We hoped you learned something this week. And if you didn't, there's always next week. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Stop, stop when my heart strings. I can just keep singing. Yeah. The moment I leave, I'm going to be with my hand. And as if it were grand. Oh, okay. He stayed out with me, and it was grand just to stand with his hand, holding mine to the end of the line. I couldn't stop once I was gone. <laughs>